Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This is another milestone, Doug. Which are 200th episode? This is episode number 200. 200. Can you imagine? Well, I don't have to. It's happening right before my eyes. <laughs> we started this podcast in 2015 took a hiatus for a while. What, was it a year ago-ish? I don't know. I don't even remember when it was. When was it? <laughs> I, don't I don't remember. And so we've been here for 200 episodes. And so before the, we started recording, we were talking about how it may not have been a very good year, but it was a very good year. And that reminded me of the Frank Sinatra song from 1965. And I was pointing out to you the sort of contrast between Sinatra's early life, where he grew up relatively poor, and him talking about, you know, girls in limousines and all that. And in 1965, he had been running his own label, Reprise Records, for five years. And he was probably looking in the mirror and thinking, well, I'm the past because, you know, the Beatles are here. And so it's a very melancholy song that is kind of, in a way, summing up his career. Yet his career went on, you know, for a couple sure. of decades after that. Well, uh, so what are you trying to do? Say that, that it was a very good year is a good theme song for, for this episode? Yeah. I, if we could play a theme song without getting sued, I would play that as the intro and the outro for this episode. Because arguably it wasn't a very good year. Well, I, I, I think the emphasis there is arguably because um, I would argue that hasn't been that bad. It's just that since nobody has been paying attention to anything... All the unusual things have risen to the surface, and there are some unusual things going on that, you know, that we talked about and um, as far as music goes and as far as listening to music and buying music and the whole music business. And what I feel bad about most of all, and, and I don't feel bad about a lot, I always ask myself at moments like this, am I the sociopath? But quite frankly, um, the only people <laughs> I feel really bad for are the musicians who don't get to play for people. Because I've seen it over the year. Yeah. They are hurt <laughs> that they cannot perform. I mean, it's not about the money. It's about the energy and about, the, uh, and about what they do. Um, and, and they're unable to do it. And it's just, uh, it's one of the weird, you know, listening to music in a crowd, I much prefer to watching a movie in a crowd. It's like, I can do without ever going to a movie theater again, but not being able to hear live music with a bunch of people, that's a... That's a weird feeling. Yeah, because being a musician is about making music. And that making music, for the most part, is a live experience, whether whether it's a small club, whether it's a big concert hall. And of course, some musicians exist only in the studio, or they record albums in the studio, but you don't become a musician if you don't want to play for other people. That's right. That's that's It's that simple. And so it's a very... it's, it's Deep down, it hurts. And it's it's depressing for a lot of people. Now, this sort of... My, as I told you a few minutes ago, my favorite expression so far as uh, for this year has been, don't you know there's a pandemic on? Because it's, I mean, I took to it immediately. Wear a mask, social distance, the, some things aren't going to happen, get used to it because it's going to be a while. Um, and we we were lucky that we had we had this opportunity to have the continuity of our show every week, every two weeks, so we could keep busy and check in on people and, and, you know, 
get an idea to uh, 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 see how things were going. Um, I know we had great expectations early in the year, and a lot of those things haven't happened, but uh, a lot of good things did happen. Well, uh, I'm looking back at our list of episodes, and we released an episode on March 11th about vintage audio gear, which I really enjoyed, because you and I, we've got a bit of a Jones for looking at this old audio gear porn on the web. And the next episode was the March 25th, Social, Isola- Social Isolation and Music, and Things Changed Just Overnight There. And and that was that was March between March 11 and March 25. I don't remember the actual date of the lockdown here in the UK, but the change was radical. And what this did for us early on was this gave us an extraordinary opportunity to interview a number of top class classical musicians who were stuck at home and couldn't work. Angela Hewitt, pianist, Stephen Huff, pianist, composer, and author, Alina Ibragamova, violinist, Arthur Michael Connolly of the uh, Harry Bosch Mysteries, my second favorite leader singer of all time, Ian Bostridge, pianist Marc-André Amelin, harpsichordist and conductor Richard Egger, classical music critic Anne Bajet, second time she was on the show. We spoke to Timo Andrus twice, so Timo's a young composer and pianist in Brooklyn. Mahan Esfahani, a harpsichordist, Catherine Williams on the flute, and interestingly, this was one of your hometown people, T.J. Connolly, who's a Boston sports DJ, and I found this really enlightening when he was explaining, because I don't go to sports, I don't watch sports, and I didn't realize how important music was, and he said that he scores these live uh, sporting events, like baseball games, football games, hockey games. It's, uh, that was a fun thing. That was a fun show. I've uh, He's doing quite well, too. He's... Still doing his uh, his three hour radio show every day here out of Boston. Yep. Just he just did his two hundredth episode. Of course, he's on every day or every yeah. weekday. He hasn't been <laughs> yeah. doing it for five years, but he's. Um, I hesitate to say that he's doing a. He's having a good time doing it, but I think he's having a good time doing it. I think um, he's found a way to get through this drought. Yes. And enjoy it. And I hope he's making enough money. There are, there's a Patreon for him if people want to donate. It's hard, as you say, because these live musicians, they can't perform. So that's not just income. It's, it's their lives. It's what they do. In October, we talked to Simona Dinnerstein, who's a pianist. And what she did is she recorded an album at home for the first time. And it's interesting to hear all of the difficulty she had because she did this on the piano where she usually performs at home. She had upstairs neighbors. She had to tell them to be quiet during the recording session. Her family and her producer were in the kitchen downstairs. So it's a, it's a really weird feeling when you're used to being out there on stage in front of people and, and getting that energy from an audience. I loved her story, and I loved the fact that Timo, Timo Andrus, is two degrees of separation from her because he consulted with her producer about how to record at home. And he has... He went a completely different way. He's gone like, oh boy, I got something fun to do now. I know what I'm going to be doing for every day for the rest of my life. I'm going to be recording at home, which to me is like, wow, that's the greatest thing you could possibly ever do. Of course, he's a composer more yeah, than a performer. So, yeah, but it's not that he's recording at home. It's that he's making yes, videos. Right. Well, at home. he's doing the whole. He's shebang, not recording which, an album. I don't know why it fascinated me. It still does. It's not like music well, videos are a new thing. Well, because you and I were both thing. in the AV club in high school, so <laughs> I we think like that's that kind what of it stuff. Is. It's um. It, but it's not like it's, music it's videos the jury are a new rigging. thing. And it's not like no, but it's home the, recording is a new thing. It's just the, the way he was approaching it, I just thought it was very fresh. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it, it was all new to him. 
Yeah, but I don't know that I've seen a lot of classical music videos recorded like that at home. Uh, you'll see the sort of multi-camera classical music videos of performances. There's, there's gazillions of them. But someone at home who starts with an iPhone, then upgrades to a, a cinema camera, gets his lighting, gets the software to do everything to, to match up the sound and the audio. And it's, it's like he's turned into a, a director, a movie director, at the same time, he's playing some music that he's written himself. He's playing some music by others. He's made these videos where he's pairing two works together. So they're mini programs. It, it is, it's fascinating. But so we've had Timo on what three times already since his podcast. And I know Timo because I knew, I know his father. His father's a, a, an editor and I worked with him on a book many years ago. And he told me about Timo playing Charles Ives Concord Sonata. And I said, well, I love that work. And then, you know, got to know him. And what I see in, in Timo's pathway, he learned to code. He, he codes his own website. He doesn't use a CMS like WordPress. He just codes everything. He learned to code when he was a teenager. So he's a tinkerer. And I, I can appreciate someone who's in music where the tinkering is different, but then having the opportunity to tinker with the stuff around it. I think that's it because I do a lot. He's a jack of all trades. And I hesitate to say master of none because he's quite talented. Yeah. Um, but I get the same. I get the same thrill vibe from getting. I don't know what from the, what he's doing that what I do. It's like if I can learn one more thing, just let me learn one more thing. Every every day will be more exciting because I can learn one more thing. You know. Um, so that's I'm I'm sure that's why I vicariously get the thrill from. from In him some doing ways, some it's some kind of like stuff. those those old movies with. Who was it that, you know, let's put on a show? Who was yeah, that? Right. Yeah, Andy Hardy, the Andy Hardy movies. The, yeah. Uh, the uh, Mickey Rooney and... Right, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Or whoever and was so, his girlfriend that movie. Yeah, in some ways it's like that, except he's putting on the show himself. Right, yeah. Instead of having a group of friends, you know, like the Bowery Boys or whatever. My father used to say, I wish I knew five guys like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because he'd want to record them all, but... That's why he liked multi-tracking. That's why he liked working alone. It's like fun when you work alone. You uh, you have total control. Well, knowing five guys like you can be a bit of a curse. I mean, <laughs> we, we talked about Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here album, which you haven't heard that episode yet because we haven't published it. Right. We recorded it a couple of weeks ago. It'll be out, I don't know, next month sometime. And these were four guys that were similar and had similar tastes and got together until they started hating each other. It was, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre's Hell is Other People, and y you get the personalities of the different musicians until Pink Floyd ended up being Roger Waters and Friends. So it's not just five guys like me, it's how long can it last? Things did fall apart this year because of this thing. One of the, you know, one of the early um, things that I really liked that happened in, in lockdown was that a local band, Dropkick Murphys, did a live performance from Fenway Park, social distancing and everything. They were like 10 feet apart from each other and played live and they did the usual set. So anyway, the guy who is the main spokesman for Dropkick Murphys also runs a couple of restaurants in town. And he had to drop those because he can't keep his restaurants open. And it made me think, I wonder what's happening with the band. Because uh, they haven't been able to play, and uh, you know these things are falling apart. I haven't. I mean, I haven't. I haven't literally heard of anybody, any musicians going out of business. But peripheral businesses have been falling apart and disappearing. Booking agencies and things like that. Well, I think the musicians are just out of business, just because. I don't think that you're going to hear. They don't go bankrupt. 
the bigger bands are probably incorporated, so there might actually be bankruptcy. But if they're big enough, they might have enough money and royalties and all that. But didn't the Dropkick Murphys do a thing with Bruce Springsteen? Yes, they, that was part of the uh, that was part of that performance. There was a uh, he, a live call in. Bruce called in, right? And uh, he was on the big screen at Fenway and uh, played along with them. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. In, in other news, and you know, I I've, I don't remember it at the time. I was too young, but. People on Twitter were reminding recently that the rock against racism thing in the 1970s was basically a reaction to Eric Clapton, who had made some famously racist statements. And him and Van Morrison got together. I'm looking at a Vanity Fair article, both age 75 and therefore at 220 times the risk of death from COVID-19 compared to people 18 to 29. (laughs) They came out with a song called Stand and Deliver. Isn't that a Clash title? Didn't Clash have one? Anyway, it has lyrics like, do you want to be a free man or do you want to be a slave? Do you want to wear these chains until you're lying in the grave? And these chains are masks, face masks (laughs) made of paper or cloth. And Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, the Constitution, what's it worth? You know they're going to grind us down until it really hurts. <laughs> Is this a sovereign nation or just a police state? You better look out, people, before it gets too late. And you have to wonder, there should be a 25th Amendment for aging rock musicians that they shouldn't be allowed to record when they get that stupid. And I hate to say it, I've always appreciated both, never big fans, but always appreciated, you know, the the, the guitar mastery of Eric Clapton and Van Morrison's wonderful voice, but this is just sad. Yeah, I... I- I'm always reminded every whenever I'm reminded of Eric Clapton's racism, I get this pang in my stomach. It's like, come on, you! I don't understand how you can. I, I don't understand how. I mean, do I have to state the obvious? How can you be so yeah. inspired by black music and yet think that the uh, and have these thoughts? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, it is what it is, and I don't know. I, I just can't. It's really hard for me to discount. The bad person from their art. I mean, you know, I had the same problem with Bill Cosby, and I have the same problem with with other. You know, it's like, what do you do? Well, this, Not is a, appreciate this is a long debate. This, yeah, you, you can have bad people who make good art. You can have good people who make bad yeah. art. It's disappointing. And, <laughs> so, well, hey, yeah. welcome to Planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one thing we started recently is I mentioned earlier we did an episode on Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, and we've done a few episodes on albums that we really like. Now, obviously, we're kind of stuck in the 70s because that's where our musical tastes were formed, but that's these are classical albums. These are recordings. We've done Exile on Main Street. We did Thick as a Brick. And we're going to talk about this with a guest in a couple of weeks, how music hasn't really changed since 1980 and how it's like music of the 1970s is frozen in amber. And we're going to be hearing this thing for a very long time. It's not like Mozart and Beethoven symphonies, but in some ways it is, isn't it? That, that this music is, is so prevalent for so many reasons. Demographics, because it was a, a generation with lots of people who are still listening to it. Radio formatting. The fact that these songs, these albums, you'll hear them in movies, on TV shows, so they're familiar, which gives them more power to be replayed again. And I find it really interesting to think that we've reached a hiatus in music. Again, we're going to talk about this with a very interesting guest in a couple of weeks, but we're, we're at a plateau and we need to break out. Well, whenever we come to this, I always go, well, the next thing is music pills. It's like there's no... No, but it's not the means of transmission. It's the style. Yeah, but even, I mean, even trying to think of something else, like what will be the catalyst that makes music change again? And I don't know if it's going to be music itself. I would think it'd be some kind of technology or... 
Yeah, I mean, but because I'm, I'm other thinking than, more stylistically. But if we look yeah. back, if we go back to the blues, the early blues, we were talking earlier in the show, what's the first rock song? And I was saying maybe Rock Around the Clock, 1952, that could be like a good milestone. But you were pointing out that, you know, you go back a little bit, it's still, it's just not electrified. It's just not, it, the, the, the beat's not quite the same, but still the music isn't that different. I mean, th- right. there is yeah. a... My, I, I, as I was saying, we were talking about, you know, you wanted to find the first rock and roll song. I was saying, we'd have to discount Chuck Berry. My father used to say that Chuck Berry was country music, which is what Chuck Berry did. He married country music with blues, and that's what you got. But if you go back in the early 50s and hear a lot of black guys, uh, black musicians on the on the West Coast, a lot of the jazz clubs, they were doing boogie-woogie and um, pre-bop it, and that sounded like rock and roll too. They even called. They might have even called it rock and roll. And even um, Robert Johnson, but, when you hear his songs, that start out with that. That's that's. It's got the. It's you know the the beats on the first note there, and it's got that same kind of rhythm. So yeah, maybe maybe it's never going to change. Maybe you know we had the whole period of symphonic music, which is everything from. Uh, you know, small to big symphonies, chamber orchestras, et cetera, that Western classical art music. Roughly, let's say from the Baroque period to the 19th century, early 20th century, when things started changing. So that was that was centuries. Maybe in rock music, we've got the same thing. It's going to go on for centuries until something else comes in. We still haven't appropriated all the world music. <laughs> it's like, you know, we haven't done it yet. There's still some African stuff, and I'm sure some Asian stuff that could be brought into popular music somehow i mean it's we're getting we see a lot of latin coming in and that's only because of of the population is is more latin now in the united yeah, states we start hearing. no it's not new it's, it's more so but it's not new yeah herb alpert and the tijuana brass oh sure 50, absolutely years old. but i mean you you hear it more now you i think you hear it more you hear i i like um south Maybe american music central more. american music. yeah and so i hear i'm definitely more attuned to it so I wanted to just mention a couple of musical discoveries that I made this year. I rediscovered a certain ratio. We discussed this a few episodes ago. Their latest record, ACR Loco, is extraordinary. Now, we did an episode on disco back in the day, and, and neither of us really liked disco then, but we can appreciate it now. And a certain ratio, I think they were defined back in the day as like post-punk funk, so they were marrying the punk sensibilities with the funk rhythms that they've got a guy playing trumpet they've they've got the kind of rhythm that you know even in manchester in 1979 was not what everyone else was listening to it was closer to the disco side than the than the punk side and so this new record it's been a long time since they made an album it's very danceable i was talking about a new record with you last week and you said yes but can you dance to it and this one definitely it's become i hate to say it my go-to record for cooking because it's loud enough that i can hear it over my kitchen aid or when the fan is on in the oven, that sort of thing. And it's got that rhythm that keeps me moving. It's a little bit less than an hour, so that's about the amount of time it takes usually to cook something like made a lamb stew the other day. It's really my my new go-to album for cooking. My previous go-to album was uh, Brian Eno's Another Green World. That's funny. But that's different. That's that's a different kind of, you know, there's a lot more mellowness there. I uh, I hadn't really thought about it. I have but when I like when I cook I like to listen to Animals by Pink Floyd. I don't know why. It's a good one. There's yep. different parts, you know. Yep. Um 
And some of the tracks are very long, yep, so that yep, takes you through long things like, you know, dicing 12 onions, Lots of things to think about while you're, you know, stirring the pot, whatever. Yeah. Um, rediscovering, that's funny. I, I was wondering if I was going to get a chance to, to mention this again. I, um, I rediscovered Jojo Gunn from the 70s. This was a band that never really did a lot of great stuff. But they put out three or four records in the early 70s that were produced by Bill Simzik, who also produced the Eagles. He produced uh, Johnny Winter, a bunch of other people in the 70s. But I'm really surprised that this band didn't uh, do as well as, gee, as, as I thought they could have. They are descended from the band Spirit, who uh, also were very big in the 60s. It's kind of psychedelic and kind of uh, bluesy, I suppose. Um, and then Jojo Gunn comes along and they, and this is, um, Jay Ferguson. Now, Jay Ferguson later had a hit in the, in the United States with a song called, uh, Thunder Island, really kind of schmaltzy song. But anyway, before he got to be Jay Ferguson, he was in Jojo Gunn and they just, they do pretty much straight ahead rock, blues oriented rock stuff, but they throw a... They throw something weird in every so often to, to make it interesting. And I don't know why I didn't pay attention to that when it was first around. But uh, since then, I've listened to most of their early stuff. And I just like throwing it on. And I've been finding other 70s bands that I've ignored, that I ignored. Uh, and, 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 and finding that they were recorded really well. And they actually had good music, but nothing ever became of them. Um, Mother's Finest is another one that just pops into my head. But uh, it's really funny, and I hate, I hate the thought that I'm stuck in the 70s. It's really embarrassing. I feel like I, it's, a, a, it's a scarlet letter. <laughs> that I thought it was reasonably more hip than that, but I guess I'm not. It's been one of my great regrets that I'm still stuck in the 70s. Our musical tastes are really influenced by what we hear when we were teenagers, I think, because that's the time that our brain's developing the most. We've, we've talked earlier about the social identification of being a fan of different kinds of music to fit in with people around you. Same thing here. So I want to just mention another rediscovery, and this is older music. I think in our episode about William S. Burroughs, Casey Ray mentioned Bill Laswell. Bill Laswell was a, a downtown avant-garde musician in New York. And one of the most influential albums for me was his 1981 album, Memory Serves. He was in, in a band that was called Material. And the same year was a record by Massacre called Killing Time that came out. Now, Massacre was... Even wild, Memory Serve was fairly wild, but Massacre was even wilder. It was Bill Laswell, drummer Fred Mayer, and guitarist Fred Frith. And if you know Fred Frith, he can be pretty wild. Memory Serves was Laswell, Marr, and Michael Beinhorn playing all sorts of synthesizers, tapes, and things like that. It did have some Fred Frith and a couple other guitarists. It, it's described on Wikipedia as a no-wave band. No-wave referring to a handful of groups particularly the compilation that Brian Eno did. They were New York punk in some ways. And, and the, the Brian Eno record had bands like, if I remember correctly, James White and the Contortions, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, which was with Lydia Lunch and a couple of others. I wouldn't really call material no wave because its musicianship was far above that. But I've been listening to those two records again recently. A lot of interesting stuff. I want to just point out a documentary that I caught on Amazon Prime Video the other day. 
I, you know, I was doing the Amazon shuffle where you're looking through the things and you look at this and then you see people who watch this also watch this. So I'm flipping through the also watch this. And there was a documentary called Shadow Man about an artist in New York called Richard Hamilton. Now, if you were in New York around the early 1980s, you would have seen this guy's work all over the place on walls. He made these black sort of eerie creatures on walls. He'd go out at night and he'd do them kind of, apparently he was a big influence on Banksy. Now, around 1983, 1984, I had an early publishing venture with a bunch of friends, a little magazine called Bogus Review. We published two issues of it. It was poetry, literature, and a little bit of music, some photography and art. In the first issue, we interviewed the Bongos, which were a New Jersey band that had a really popular song back in the day. And in the second issue, and I had totally forgotten about this, we went to speak with Richard Hamilton. I don't know who put me in touch with him, but we went to his studio and talked with him for a while. And so he had gotten to the point, this was 1984. I had no idea he was just about to expose at the Venice Biennale, but we got one photo in the, the magazine of a street painting and another one of a studio painting. I had totally forgotten about him, and he was an artist who was omnipresent, so his career was extremely weird and interesting, and he was a drug addict, and he was homeless, and then he got found again by some art dealers, Giorgio Armani sponsored a All big the thing. Boxes. Yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes, because really, if you're interested in New York in the 1980s and the art scene, you got to see this. He was, the, the three big artists back then were Keith Haring, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and Richard Hamilton. And I had no idea at the time that this guy was so famous, even if he wasn't famous. So I found this really interesting. Now, unfortunately, the documentary didn't have any music from the time. You know, that costs money to, to license music, but it needed to have some, you know, really gritty Lower East Side music from that period. Speaking of music from a period, Wonder Woman 84 has just come out, and uh, well, I'm not really in a rush to see it myself, but I wonder if there's much 80s music on the soundtrack. According to Wikipedia, there are, most of it is a soundtrack by Hans Zimmer, or uh, Henry Room, as his name would be translated. But there are a few songs, uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, M.E. by Gary Newman, Rio by Duran Duran. I don't think you could score a movie like that with just contemporary songs because people who listen, people who watch those movies are used to them being scored by composers. The, the the classical film orchestral film soundtrack is part of the style. You know the timpanis boom 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 when things get serious and the the pizzicato violins and the the quivery flutes and all that. Just why don't they just license the planets and they can use all the sound <laughs> from Holst? And because that's to me that's what it's I mean whenever I hear you hear it all the time. Anyway. No, I probably won't watch that. But I was just surprised. 1984, I think, was it going to hear some New Order? We're going to hear some, you know, Happy Mondays? going to hear some, some, uh, some a certain ratio? <laughs> what, is it, what is there going to be? Yeah, or even some Clash. Anything, or, 80s, you know. You know, anything that would have been around mm -hmm. then. Some Bruce Springsteen. I give him credit for getting Rio in there, Duran Duran. But that still not, does not signify to me 80s. That just signifies Duran Duran. That's... <laughs> yeah, and MTV. Yeah, it doesn't feel like 80s real right. music. And and frankly, even 1984, you're going to have some early rap that's going to sure. be popular enough. Sure. You know, the Sugar Hill Gang Rapper's stuff. Rapper's Delight is, was is, out by then, yeah. sure. So one other thing that I realized this year, I, we've mentioned, we've talked about Sonos and 
I told you I have a Sonos Beam soundbar. I guess I've had it for two years now, and, and it's really quite good. Really? Yeah, maybe even three. It's quite some time. And Sonos came out with a new soundbar, the Arc, which is a lot bigger. It's about twice the price, and it's it's got more directional speakers and all that. But here's the problem. In order to use that, I would need a TV that supports Dolby Atmos. In order to get the most out of that soundbar, I could use it with my TV. But I need a TV that supports Dolby Atmos and has eARC, which is a specific HDMI connection thing. And I started looking into this, and I went down this rabbit hole, which was basically, why will I ever buy a TV again? These things have gotten so (laughs) complicated. It's like going back to, you know, PCs in the 1990s and making sure you have all the right ports and connectors and things and nothing's compatible. And how have they destroyed the TV market by making things so incredibly complicated that it's just, I don't understand it. So I've realized that I'm not going to bother that until this TV dies. At least I don't have that problem with audio. I'm pretty settled on my audio gear and... Even if I wanted to buy new audio gear, it would be just, it would work the same. It wouldn't have, you know, it's weird how TV movies, the movie studios, the TV studios have locked everything in with, you know, copy protection and patented stuff. And audio is essentially, you buy a little plastic disc that has uncompressed, (laughs) unencrypted unprotected audio. It's always been that way. No, 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 no. You remember the brief period of copy-protected CDs? Well, yeah, but... That was a blip, but that was an annoying blip. Right. But video, they've always been tighter on on the copy protection than on audio. Although, when the first Star Wars came out, gee, somehow we magically got a reel-to-reel video of it. It, it, You know, I don't know how A reel-to-reel video? Yeah, it was a reel... Someone had shot... Someone got into the projection booth and had set up a camera and recorded the original Star Wars at the movie theater and got it to us where I worked in a video studio in college and they oh, got it into right. us. Oh, right, because I was going to ask you how you had a reel-to-reel video player. Yes, right, yes. We, we, we were able okay. to run it. wasn't it. a home player. No, 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 no. So, okay. that, I mean, people, we've been stealing video forever. <laughs> All right, I guess that's enough for this year. We're not going to really do next track picks, are we? No, I don't think it's necessary because you can, we've got. Yeah, we just mentioned a couple of albums that we've been listening to. So. We yeah. did. Okay. All right. That's enough for this year. In case you hadn't heard, this was episode number 200 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.